Hey everyone, this is Natalie Ivey, and in today's show, I'm going to discuss five tips for investigative interviewing and discuss best practices for conducting both in-person and virtual interviews. So glad to have you with me today. Welcome to the HR Investigations Podcast, exploring the issues, challenges, strategies, and solutions. Sponsored by RPCHR and hosted by Natalie Ivey, an HR consultant, licensed PI, and author of the best-selling book, How to Conduct Internal Investigations, a Practical Guide for Human Resource Professionals. And now, here's Natalie. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Today, I'm going to be talking about the top five tips for investigative interviewing. And why I've chosen this for my podcast episode today is that lately I've had some conversations with employee relations professionals and some HR Uh, team members, and uh, they struggle a little bit with understanding process. Now, a lot of the larger organizations that I consult with and work with on cases, they have usually some pretty solid processes and procedures, um, and so they're usually on the right track. However, a lot of my small to medium-sized organizations, especially the medium-sized ones, they tend to have a lot more cases, and also they aren't necessarily working with some solid procedures. And so what you have is this sort of shotgun approach, if you will. One group does it one way, another group does it another way, and there's really kind of no consistency in the process. So, so tip number one, you want to prepare for the interview. That seems logical, right? But you'd be surprised how many people don't, and they do kind of the fly-by-the-seat-of-one's-pants approach. And the problem with that is that when you don't really have your kind of game plan together, you're going to not play a pretty darn good game, right? Think about, you know, football players or professional athletes. They have to kind of get their head in the game before they kind of put their feet on the field, right? So that's the kind of thing I want you to think about as an investigator, regardless of whether you're in employee relations or HR, or you work in an ethics and compliance group. Um, You should have a template prepared. And, you know, in the investigations training classes that I teach, I have, you know, templates and tools and other things. Uh, So you can just check my website out and sign up for one of my classes. But inside your organization, you probably have certain case types that are more routine. Let's say you have more sexual harassment cases, or you might have more conflict of interest or ethics cases, uh, and of a certain type, code of conduct. All right, discrimination cases. Then have interview templates with questions already prepared. And when you were working with that template, now after you've done a few of these, you probably figured out that there are some additional questions that you really liked and you want to include them. Great. So it's kind of this continuous process improvement. All right. So that's the first step here. Then also virtual or in person. It just depends. Um, If you are going to uh, interview someone that is in a foreign country and travel is just not likely, then it's probably going to be virtual. And even domestically in the U.S., if you're in New York and you have to interview someone in L.A., are you really needing to get on a plane to go do that? That's a judgment call. I will tell you that uh, the more serious the cases are, uh, the greater the likelihood is that you're going to want to get on a plane and you're going to want to do that in person. Sometimes when interviewing uh, the subject, and it might be um, maybe a very difficult interview, sometimes you might need to think about should be in person instead of a virtual. I would suggest you speak with your boss, a few other colleagues, let others kind of weigh in on whether you're, if you're on the fence about virtual or in person, uh, usually getting a few more heads on it is going to give you a good perspective. Okay. Now, if interviewing the subject, just a reminder, never interview a subject alone. Um, Number one, it is not safe. Uh, You never know the 
sort of state of mind that a subject may be in. So you always want to have somebody else that is with you. Even if it's not another investigator, it should be at least another member of management. Do not bring in just a frontline employee. You don't want that. You want someone on the management side because if later on you get into litigation, you need uh, someone who is actually at an exempt level uh, and managerial employee, even if you're doing this virtually. Now, if you're recording it, then not so much. Uh, And I'll talk about that a little bit here. But if you are recording the interview, Fine. Uh, The reason why I recommend that you don't interview a subject alone, and if you're not recording it, is the same kind of thing can happen if you're in person. The subject, when they start feeling the pressure that maybe the walls are closing in, that you're really onto them, that they have engaged in some misconduct, sometimes they can get a little nasty, and um, even on a virtual call. And then they start making accusations that you behaved inappropriately in the interview, and now suddenly you are the subject of an investigation. Let's not have that happen to you. So you either have a management level witness with you or you're able to record the interview so that you have evidence that supports that you, of course, did not engage in any kind of misconduct while you were interviewing that individual. Okay. Um, The other thing you have to think about uh, in tip number one here in preparing for the interview is what is your documentation method going to be? You can't just go for it, sit down and grab a legal pad. That's very much um, a novice strategy here and it doesn't work very well. Um, You really want to have a laptop, and that way uh, you're able to really take notes. Now, if you're not very good at keyboarding, okay, then maybe you do have to use your handwritten notes and then transcribe. The only thing I caution you on is that it's a difficult thing to do, and you better take really good notes and also uh, be able to read your handwriting. Okay, so figure out how you're going to do that. If you're going to be on a virtual call, then you're probably going to need a separate laptop Um, or if you can do a split screen, but I I really find that having just a separate laptop is an easier process. But do keep in mind that you have to have pretty good keyboarding skills. Now, my keyboarding skills, I learned to type way back in the day, and I know where the home row is on the keyboard, and I I can type basically as fast as someone can talk. So you need to really think that through. And if it's a real serious investigation here, and you're not really someone who is skilled at keyboarding and can't keep up, then I would suggest that you do have somebody else with you who is going to be recording. Okay. Uh, And meaning recording, like taking notes. Okay. Now you want to identify if your organization has a policy for cooperating in internal investigations. And if you do, then certainly have a copy of it. You want that handy and you want to make sure that you send that at the time that you are scheduling the individual for the interview, whether it is in person or whether it is on a virtual call. Why? Because, uh, especially with virtual interviews, sometimes what you will have are people playing games, like especially when you're interviewing a subject and, oh, the call dropped, and then they just sort of disappear and then they don't want to re-engage with you. Well, if they continue to dodge you that way, you can remind them, send them an email citing the policy, and you also want to make sure you provide an alternate callback number. And you want to provide very specific instructions when scheduling the interview Uh, That in the event that we are disconnected, let's say, you know, you have a power outage, you drop internet, and you can't get, let's say, Zoom or uh, go to meeting back or Teams, then they are advised that they must call you or you call them either way at a certain number, and you should already have had that prepared as well. Um, I need to have an alternate call number to be able to speak with you in the event we are disconnected and make sure that that is a valid number, okay? Um, Again, this is particularly important when you're working with a subject. Now, lastly, for tip number one, know who you are interviewing and why. And also, does this interviewee require a reasonable accommodation? 
Okay? We are uh, much more diverse today than we were even probably five years ago. So you may have individuals that have a physical disability, maybe someone who is hard of hearing or a person who might uh, have a visual impairment. You might have someone who is neurodivergent, uh, meaning that perhaps they are on the autism spectrum. And that also is part of your preparation. You certainly wouldn't want to sit down in a conference room uh, with big windows all around you right adjacent to like an airport or something like that, where there's a lot of visual stimulation or lights flickering. That is going to make that investigative interview very, very difficult for a person. Um, and others that may have um, you know, certain uh, types of uh, disorders, right? So English, that's an issue. Uh, we are, again, a much more diverse workforce in the U.S. So don't just make the assumption that the interviewee is fluent in English. And if you don't know this person, you should find that out ahead of time. And if you are going to need a translator, then you want to hire someone who is skilled and qualified to be a translator and do not bring in just another employee uh, who happens to just be able to speak that language. Let's say you're interviewing someone who is who speaks fluent Vietnamese. All right, you may not have someone else on the management team who can speak that language. So that means you're going to need to go outside the organization to have a valid translator. Then also, you want to create the order of your witnesses. This is an important part of the preparation. Um, obviously, when you have a complaint that comes in and a complainant has named several witnesses, you already have them on your list of who you want to talk with. Um, but you need to create an order. And one of the things to think about is the availability of your witnesses. People do take vacations, you know. Uh, they do have medical leaves and they take PTO. So you want to make sure that all of your witnesses are going to be available. You know, is there a, an upcoming trade show where maybe someone who works in sales is going to be gone for a week or 10 days? If so, then move that interview up, try to get to them before they're going to take off, um, you know, and go to the show or something. Then the other thing is with the order of your witnesses, be mindful of relationships. Uh, gossiping and contamination is certainly something that you need to worry about. So if you know that, uh, let's say you're interviewing a manager, and then you also have to interview an assistant manager, understand the strength of that relationship. If they are really pretty close and kind of hang out outside of work, then chances are, if you interviewed the assistant manager first, and the manager is the subject of the investigation, probably in you know, less than 30 seconds after that individual leaves the interview with you, they're going to be texting and giving a heads up to that other manager. So you've got to think about the order of your witnesses strategically uh, because if you don't want individuals to uh, sort of swap stories in between the time that you've interviewed one and then the other, then you might need to schedule successive interviews where in succession, or you're going to have another investigative team member interview the manager at the same time, right? So think about those types of things and also gossiping and the possible contamination of your case. If you find that there are a couple of individuals that you're going to be interviewing that work in the same department and maybe they are kind of close working relationship, work together a long time, you're also going to have the potential for a leak to happen as well. Uh, so you've got to really be mindful of that. And that's another thing you have to consider with the order of your witnesses. All right. So now let's move on to tip number two, developing opening protocols. All right. So what is an opening protocol? Number one, it is a bullet point of something that you have to cover at the beginning of the investigative interview. So a checklist, if you will. Thank the interviewee for coming. Introduce yourself. They may not know who you are. Explain your role, your responsibilities. Define the process and just don't assume that the interviewee understands what your process is for conducting investigations. Then also 
You've got to provide some contact information. Uh, you want to give them uh, your business card if it's in person. If it's uh, not in person, then hopefully they've already gotten your contact information, but you want to remind them of that. Also, then when you're explaining the process in opening protocols, you want to cover things like uh, recording or not recording. Uh, some organizations will permit recording of interviews, whether it's live or virtual, uh, and then others do not want to allow recording at all. Um, so you want to be clear on that, and you're going to need to ask your legal counsel because, again, organizations do this a little bit differently. When I'm uh, conducting virtual interviews, my preference is to record. However, uh, as an HR consultant and private investigator, I have to abide by what my client's will direct me to do. So I have to follow that protocol. But my personal opinion is I like having that uh, recorded, uh, the virtual calls especially, but you also have to be mindful of union shops. When you have collective bargaining agreements, aka a union contract, you do have to be mindful that some will permit it, some will not permit it. Some, if they do permit it, then it might be that you will have to provide a full transcription of that conversation. So these are just things to uh, be mindful of. I think the other thing that's important to cover is non-retaliation. Uh, you need to explain the organization's position. And I would also cover if there is a policy regarding cooperation in internal investigations um, and explain that cooperation is expected and that also involvement of others is going to be on a need-to-know basis. You're going to maintain confidentiality uh, and the only people that are going to know about the conversation that's about to take place will be those strictly need-to-know. Now, moving on to tip number three, you want to begin the interview with baseline questions. So what's a baseline question? It's a question that an interviewee will not have a reason to lie about it. Things like, uh, what is your position here? How long have you worked for manager so-and-so? What are some of the projects that you're working on right now? Where is your work location? Uh, where is your work location in relation to uh, Martha so-and-so, who may be a coworker? You just want to ask questions that the interviewee will not have a reason to lie. Now, obviously, if you know this individual, you're not going to ask, what's your position here? That's kind of silly. So you have to figure out some other things. It could be that you know that this person is working on maybe their project management certification. You might ask and say, hey, so I know you're working on your PMP. When is it that you expect to have your certification? How many more classes do you have left in your certification class? And things like that. Try to make it relevant. Why is this important? Well, baseline questions really lay the foundation for the entire interview. It's a building rapport period of time, but what you're doing is you're watching for how the person is responding. You're listening to the tone, the cadence of their voice, the pitch, and you're really listening for their comfort level. Right? And when people are answering something, a question truthfully, you're going to hear some things. And so you want to ask a good five to seven of those, get in a rhythm at the beginning of the interview before you move into asking some of the more kind of probing type of questions, right? Tip number four, when you're getting into the interview, you want to get the chronology down, the dates, times, and details of the events that have unfolded. So generally when you're interviewing, let's start with maybe a complainant, the most current issue is usually what's on their mind. So get the dates, times, and details by asking the who, what, where, when, how, and why. So if you're investigating, let's say, an allegation of sexual harassment, and there was the most current issue that uh, happened, let's say, yesterday afternoon in the warehouse. Okay, so let's get the who, what, where, when, why, and how in the warehouse yesterday afternoon. But once you've really gotten all of those details worked out and you have a clear picture of what went on, then you want to ask, now, um, I've got all the details uh, regarding the latest incident. 
So please describe for me any other situations you may have experienced that are the same or similar to what you just shared with me. And notice how I asked that. Please describe for me, right? I didn't ask it in a closed-ended way like, well, did you experience this before? No, I don't want a yes or a no. I'm probing. I want them to tell me what it is that may have transpired, if anything, before we got here today. So then if you have other incidents in the past, I recommend working with the oldest one and say, okay, so describe for me, please, the the first incident and when was that? So let's say um, we're here in November with the current incident that happened in the warehouse yesterday, but the first incident was back in February. Great. Start back at February and then who, what, where, when, why February, and then walk it forward. Let's say another incident happened in June and then another one in August. Great. Who, what, where, when, why? you know, each of those months and walk it forward chronologically. Why? Number one, it's going to help you when you go to prepare your investigation report, and it's going to make sure that you're getting the dates, times, and details accurate. But if you have an interviewee that is bouncing from this current issue, then back to February, then back to the one in August, you're going to get all tangled up, and then you're going to do a shoddy job of it, right? So trust me, you want to get the chronology down. All right, now, last tip, number five, closing protocols. All right, so just like we talked about opening protocols, you also want to have some closing protocols. Again, bullet points, checklist of things that you will need to cover upon conclusion of the interview. A couple of things here. Now, number one, if you are an organization that requires a formal statement that needs to be prepared, then that means all of the questions and answers that you've just been jotting down, maybe in the last hour, hour and a half, two hours you've had with the interviewee, you're going to need time to synthesize that information and compile it into a statement. That is going to take you about 25 minutes. Uh, Some investigators, that may take them quite a bit longer. But if you're really good, you should be able to pull it together in about 25 minutes. So then you want to tell the interviewee, okay, just, um, you know, stay put here. Uh, Can I get you a bottle of water or something? And I'm going to go next door. I just need to pull this together and print it. And then I will be back shortly so that you can acknowledge everything that we discussed and to make sure I have it captured accurately. So that's how it works when you're doing formal statements in an in-person type of interview. Now, if your organization doesn't do formal written statements, and that means that you're preparing it in first-person language, and you're going to present it to the interviewee for them to acknowledge, they read through it and acknowledge with a signature, and the investigator will also sign and date it, okay? Now, if you're not doing that, then you would have a document of conversation where you've just simply uh, pulled everything together in a summary format of what you just talked about. And some organizations don't even do that at all. Some just keep the questions and answers and they don't even present anything to the interviewee to sign. There are pros and cons to each of those methods. And uh, so in my next podcast episode, I'm going to be talking about these differences. So you'll need to stay tuned for that. What are some examples of closing protocols here? Well, number one, you want to express appreciation for the person coming and spending time with you. And then you want to talk about what happens next. What are the procedures? And that will be unique to each organization. Um, You want to maintain confidentiality and you want to explain and reiterate that information will be shared only on a need to know basis. And then sometimes, and this would probably be a very narrow exception, you would need to have the individual sign a confidentiality agreement. Um, I will say probably fewer than 5% of the cases that I work even for organizations will require that type of agreement. With that said, when you're closing out, you also need to know, will this individual be entitled to a copy of their statement? That's also a question for legal counsel. 
in uh, some union shop environments that will be required. And uh, it may be that you don't have to produce it right in the moment. It may be several days later, you can provide them with a copy. If let's say it will take you longer to compile their statement. Uh, but some do have a requirement that you would have to produce it, let's say within 72 hours. Okay, so there you have it. You've got my top five tips for investigative interviewing. And as I said in my next podcast, I'll be discussing the differences between documenting conversations and preparing formal written statements. And we're going to talk about the pros and cons of both. So see you next time on the HR Investigations Podcast. Thanks for joining us today on the HR Investigations Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, like, and share the show with any colleagues who will benefit from our strategies and solutions. For free bonus resources, simply visit hr-investigations.com. And remember, if you'd like some help with improving your investigative skills, or if your organization is in need of an external investigator to help with the case, please get in touch with us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.